Father, as we turn now to the preaching of Your Word, I ask that You would meet with us, that You would fill me, fill my heart with the enjoyment of You so that You are seen as a better goal and a better prize and a day in Your courts is seen as better than a thousand elsewhere. And I pray the same for our brothers and sisters um, here gathered together to hear from You. Speak to us from Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our passage this morning is Psalm 84, a psalm of praise. Psalm 84, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Poetry. Poetry is an interesting thing, right? You, uh, the kids, the kids in the congregation are. It, it's August. We're getting close to starting up back um, school. And I remember each year in language arts, I would loop around, and about three quarters of the way through, my language arts program would have a whole section, a whole little booklet on poetry. And it seemed completely at odds with everything else that we were learning. Because in English, you're supposed to learn how to speak straightforwardly, how to be concise and clear. And then we hit poetry, and it's completely different rules. It seems like we're trying to learn the most obtuse, opaque way of stating something. I just didn't get it. And I could kind of get limericks and maybe haikus and I didn't know what to do with iambic pentameter. Have any of you used that recently? Are you grateful for all, all those uh, hours spent studying that? But poetry has a special power. 
See, with so many things, we, we, we're taking these things into our minds and we're processing them and analyzing them and, and eventually we come up with a principle. And then if we believe that principle firmly enough, it's going to trickle down and impact the way we feel. But poetry has this way of just stepping in and being like, I'll take this dance. And suddenly he's waltzing around with your girl. Poetry has this power to completely step in and go straight for the heart. And art does this. So we might be frustrated with the fact that poetry is not an efficient means of communication, but it's not meant to be efficient. It's not meant to merely shove your mind full of data, propositions, so that you can make a syllogism. See, one of our biggest problems is not that we don't understand God's truth, it's that we aren't captured by it. We aren't thrilled by it. And that's one of the ways that these psalms and poetry in the Scriptures helps us. It serves us. I don't, I don't care how meticulously analytical you think that you are. We are not just logic boxes walking around on legs. That's not how God made us. Which is not to deride logic. We need more logic today. We need more analytical thinking and carefully crafted arguments that, that is useful today. But recognizing that we are led, oftentimes we are led as much by the way we feel as the things we think, means that logically we should value poetry for its unique power. And this is why when John Piper did a mini-series through the Psalms like 15 years ago, he titled it, Thinking and Feeling with God. Because we want to do both. The Psalms give us truths about God for us to think. And it also paints a picture for us. A picture that stirs our soul like art does. What the psalmist does here in Psalm 84 is paint a picture in poetry. A picture of God being worth so much that He counts everything else a loss so that He can have that. So that He can be close to where God is at work. And as we look at this picture this morning, some of you will already be here. You say, yes, Yes, I already know. A day in His courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. And others will see this picture and say, I want that. And of course we want it. Because this Psalm gives us a picture of the good life. The good life is, is the life that we are all chasing. We might label it different ways. We might call it happiness. We might call it blessedness. But this psalm gives us this picture of passion and enjoyment, affection, strength and security. In a sense, it shows us the secret of happiness. 
As we have three stanzas and in each one a statement. The first stanza in verse 4, Happy are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. The second stanza then in verse 5, Happy are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. And then in verse 12 for the third stanza, Happy is the one who trusts in you. Of course, in, in most of your translations, that word is translated blessed. And, and probably better, because happy can seem frothy and just temporary, superficial. I'll experience an emotion. On the other hand, the word blessed may have the opposite problem. It's kind of like cod liver oil. It's supposed to be good for you, but nobody wants it. What do we want? We want to be happy. Many of us are familiar with the the, the quote from Blaise Pascal, the 17th century French uh, scientist and philosopher. He said, All men and women, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it, it is the same desire in both. And he'll go on to even say, even the person who hangs himself is motivated by this desire, I'm just trying to find happiness. And it might look like relief. And it might look like pleasure. But it's going to look like something. The question is not, will we pursue happiness? But how will we pursue it? We can call it blessedness. We can call it happiness. But we all want this thing. And the big question is, is where do we find it? And the answer in this psalm is that happiness must be found in God. God is the secret of happiness. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Or we could say happiness is found in God being our satisfaction. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. Or we could say happiness is found in God being our strength. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Or we could say happiness is found in God being our security. So if you want to be happy, and you do, God must be your all. So as we'll go through this psalm, make God your satisfaction. Make God your strength. Make God your security. The two things that stand out in our first stanza are the intensity of the psalmist's desires and the simplicity of his wants. Listen to the first stanza again. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Did you know the, the intensity of his desires right next to the simplicity of his wants? 
I think this is why this psalm and, and, and others like it are so striking. They, they are in stark contrast to where we live so often with our half-hearted search for joy in a, a million different directions. And, and this isn't an isolated mountaintop moment. We find similar expressions repeated throughout the Psalms, expressions of intense spiritual delight like Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for You, O God. Or Psalm 63, O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 27 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. We find repeated in these Psalms this, this connection between the intensity of the desire and the simplicity of its focus. And, the, and this makes sense. A wide meandering stream with a wide bed, it meanders along, but it grows powerful when forced into narrow shut-ins. Or you take a flashlight and you have beams of light going in a bunch of different directions and then you take those light beams and you focus them in and maybe you even bounce them back and forth until you get this focused beam of light and we have a laser which is much more useful for certain things, much more less, much less useful for, for others. Uh, but, but a laser has that intensity because it has had its focus narrowed. And perhaps that's why our affections seem so weak compared to the Psalms we just read. Our hearts are pulled in so many different directions. And this uh, keeping up with the Joneses box that we carry around, it doesn't help. We have, we have so many wants. I bet the kids can think of a few wants. You come up on one of their birthdays and you ask them for a wish list and they go and spend a few minutes and you get a page. But it's not just the kids. Adults, we've got our lists. Things that we want or wish we had. Maybe it's stuff. Maybe it's a new car, a new gun. Maybe it's a bigger house. Or maybe it's Intangibles like success or recognition or pleasure or stability, the elusive stability. Note that we're not talking here about bad things, but about a bad place that our heart can go when we chase after things or when we think that we are second-class heavenly citizens because we don't have those things. If we fixate on things other than God as necessary for our happiness, we will end up neglecting or rejecting God in order to pursue those things. Instead of making God our satisfaction, we'll turn satisfaction into our God. And this is the tendency Jesus warns us about in His parable of the soils. The tendency for the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches to grow up like thorns and choke the life out of our satisfaction in God. 
And no, that's not just for the person in the next income bracket above you. That's for us. That happens in my life. Kids, the world wants to sell you a picture of the good life. And they'll put hashtag blessed. And it looks like exotic locations and good hair and name brand clothes. But the psalmist here also has a picture for you. Actually, he's got two. The first is some birds he saw when he was at the temple. Look at those birds. They've got it made. They know what's up. The dude was envying birds. Why? Because those birds that he saw, the sparrows flitting around the temple, the swallows swooping in to build a nest in the temple nook, they had found a way to be always in the presence of Yahweh. The second picture is not in our stanza, it's in the third stanza, but he says in verse 10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now I actually think this was closer to home or work for for this guy because the writer of our psalm, this psalmist is one of the sons of Korah. And, and in First Chronicles 26.1, we're told that David sets these guys over the guarding of the, of the gates. They are doorkeepers. And, and so when he says that's the good life, he, he's speaking of a life that he's experienced. But these, these are his pictures. His good life pictures, hashtag blessed. A bird, some birds, and a doorkeeper. Why these pictures? Because the only thing that recommends them is their nearness to God. Their nearness to where God is actively manifesting His presence. And that's enough to make them enviable. The sparrow was common. In Jesus' day, two sparrows are sold for a penny. The, the doorkeeper was an unglamorous job. But if being a bird or a doorman in the temple means you get closer to where God is making Himself known, that's a good gig. Now in the New Covenant, we no longer have the temple. We are the temple. But we still have a choice between choosing and chasing satisfaction in a dozen different directions or finding it in knowing God. And the psalmist here would say, if you want to be happy, Make God your satisfaction. Second, make God your strength. Let's look at the second stanza, verse 5-8. through Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength, Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. If all we had was the first stanza, we might all become monks. We might think that satisfaction in God is a destination for the privileged few. 
the privileged few who can afford to detach themselves from the world and spend all their time serving at church and thinking about holy things. But then we get to the second stanza and we have a scene change. We're no longer in the temple. We are on a pilgrimage to the temple. Now, I say temple. uh, We don't have the temple mentioned here. We can't quite date this psalm written by these sons of Korah. It, it, It may have been later on when the temple was built. It may have been in David's day when the temple had not yet been built. There was a tabernacle in Zion. Now, I think there's good reasons to think it was a little bit later when... um, We'll we'll get to that. But but we don't yet know uh, that... I'm going to keep saying temple because it's easier. Um, But we we can't place it exactly. But the simple fact is, as it relates to Zion, is that most Israelites, including most Levites, did not live in Zion, in Jerusalem. But three times a year, all the Israelite men were supposed to make a journey to where the ark was. Deuteronomy 16.16, you can just jot that down if you want, says there are three feasts. Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which has Passover right in the middle, um, Feast of Weeks, and, and Feast of Booths. And so on those three times, Feast of Weeks is kind of a, a harvest first fruits festival. Feast of Booths remembers their um, pilgrimage from Egypt to the Promised Land and living in tents, traveling, being on a journey. And so you have this pattern where the Israelites are flowing to Jerusalem and so this familiar picture of a pilgrimage that the psalmist here references. The significance for us is that God's blessing, the good life that He gives us, is not reserved for a select few holy men. It is not an in-destination God is not only known in the temple, He is known along the way. He makes Himself known along the way as the God who gives stamina, the God who gives sustenance, the God who gives strength. Because this wasn't an easy pilgrimage. If you lived in Naphtali, up in the northern part of the country, this could be a journey of over a hundred miles. You don't make this journey on a whim, like Pliable in John Bunyan's classic Pilgrim's Progress. He tries to go along with uh, Pilgrim on a whim. But if you do that, you're going to hit trouble. You're going to hit the slough of despond. You're going to hit the valley of Baca. And you will turn back. Unless, unless you have something in your heart saying, no, you can't stop. Because you've got in your heart the highways to Zion. When others turn away, those who have the highways to Zion in their hearts say, like Peter, I'm out of options. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is no going back. We are going to Zion. Okay, so what is this valley of Baca? We don't know. It's a place we can't pinpoint. Some of you may have a footnote indicating that alternately it means something like weeping or maybe balsam trees. 
and it's because we have Hebrew words that could be construed to, to, to match that word and maybe that explains why this place it has this, this name. But what seems clear from the context is that this is a particularly difficult part of the journey where water is in short supply. Those who speculate, it means balsam trees say so because they grow. this, this plant grows in a, an arid climate. And so this would be a place where the pilgrims are really, really hoping some, for some rain. They feel their need and they gratefully receive the rain and the springs that God sends. This is how God meets the pilgrims along the way here. And this is how God meets us. He leads us through difficult places like getting cut from a job or shunned by a friend or not being able to sleep. And He supplies what we need in those difficult places. We go from strength to strength. But we shouldn't see verse 7, strength to strength to just be this triumphalistic, we are awesome, we never get tired. We shouldn't see it to mean Christians never get weary, never feel weak. Paul felt weak. He says so. Jesus felt weak. The psalmist here feels weak. How do we know? Look at verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. This is a man who needs something. God leaves the request unspoken. But this is a man who knows his need. The encouraging thing in this picture though is that our weakness is not the final word. God's strength is. And His provision. And His calling. They are what keeps the pilgrim moving forward until, as verse 7 says, each one appears before God in Zion. And so if you want to be happy, then follow the psalmist and make God your strength. He can be relied upon. Third, make God your security. Look at this final stanza starting in verse 9. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from Him who walks uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in You. So in this psalm, we're seeing this compelling picture of the good life. Our desire for happiness says, I need something that satisfies. God says, happy are those who dwell in my house. We say, but I feel so weak. How can I get there? God says, happy are those whose strength is in me. But we still sometimes hold back in fear. Fear of attack, fear of loss fear of opposition. The problem with a singular focus is that we run the risk of being blindsided or hit from the back by the unknown. We cannot have that singular focus unless we are secure. 
And God knows this about us. He knows our fears. He knows our vulnerabilities. He knows our insecurities. And He reassures us, I am a sun and shield. Happy. Happy are you. If you can believe that, happy is the one who trusts in me. Our psalmist here is also aware of the threats. He was just reflecting on the pilgrimage. If they were faithful three times a year, all the Israelite men are gathered in Jerusalem. You want to talk about vulnerable? That's vulnerable. This is, this is trust fall level vulnerability. It, it, it doesn't make sense unless you have an implicit trust, confidence in the person catching you. You need to know that they intend to catch you and that they have the power to catch you. So, you know the trust fall where you like close your eyes and you fall back and you've got a friend promising to catch you? And sometimes you're not quite sure whether they will, so you could do this thing and catch yourself? In a sense, that's what God's asking the Israelites to do here. When He calls them and says, send all your men here. All the guys that would be in your army, Jerusalem. Three times a year. And the psalmist does trust. He believes that God, verse 11, is a sun and shield. He believes the Lord bestows favor and honor. He believes that no good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. He happily commits himself, his king, and his people into the hands of Yahweh in his prayer. Verse 9, Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. But you notice that between these two verses, you have verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. This verse seems out of place. seems like it belongs in stanza one. What does being a doorkeeper have to do with national security? Nothing and everything. It, it, nothing directly, but it has a lot to say about personal security. And the person who can trust God with the details of their life tends to find it a whole lot easier to trust the same God with the rest of the world. The psalmist's commitment in the first stanza to make God his satisfaction means he's already done the work of letting go of a lot. He's holding loosely. Which means he's not having to guard a whole lot. It's very tight. He's not worried about his net worth or his social standing. He's not worried about protecting an upwardly mobile lifestyle. He just wants to be at his post. He just wants to be where God is making himself known. And we can't take this for granted. A lot of times we read the Bible, and especially with the extras, the extra characters, we treat them like NPCs. Non-playable characters in a video game. They like go around and they're very limited in what they do. And that's what we imagine with 
these, these Levites, for instance. The Levites are assigned to be gatekeepers, so what do we expect for them to do for hundreds of years? Gatekeep. Of course. That's what you're supposed to do. That's your job. Well, is that how you function always? You always do your job? The Bible gives us at least two vignettes uh, that explode this misconception that these guys weren't people like us. They, they are. They're, they're people very much like us. Uh, Judges 7... So, so these two uh, vignettes, pictures, are on either side probably of where this psalm was written. So I'm not saying exactly that one of these was at play, but in Judges, the time of Judges, Judges 17, you have a Levite, and it's probably a spiritual low ebb in Israel, and so the money is probably not coming into the temple, and you've got this this Levite from from Bethlehem who starts traveling about. He ends up in Ephraim looking for work. And he gets hired by, by this guy named Micah. Pretty wealthy guy. He's made an idol. He wants a personal priest. You've got your personal chef. You've got your personal priest. You, that guy's living the good life. And, and so this Levite signs on to be personal priest in this guy's house. He ends up getting picked up by a band of Danites. Um, but that's another story. Um, it, on the other hand, in Nehemiah's time, Nehemiah 13 um, has this uh, story where um, in Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah's coming in, he's making reforms. Verse 10, he says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together and set them in their stations. These Levites were people like us. When they don't have a job, they're going to go look for one because they need to eat, or at least that's what they think. I mean, they do. They do. We all need to eat. Thankfully, God says in another psalm, I have never seen the righteous um, begging bread. Um, but, but here we have this, this reality. And, and so, when our, our psalmist writes in verse 10 here in our passage uh, that he would rather be a doorkeeper than dwell in the tents of wickedness, this may have been a real opportunity for him. It may have been a real temptation. He may have seen fellow Levites taking such a path to alternative employment. But while that might have had immediate financial benefits and offered some sort of sense of security, it would require stepping out of the good life that God had assigned the good life of enjoying God and being in His presence. And the psalmist is not willing to make that trade. Because he has already made God his satisfaction. He is relying on God as his strength. And he will and is committed to seeing God as his security. He will not make the trade. See, we do have to trade oftentimes in life. If you do a trade, if you do a trust fall rather, and you catch yourself, you are trading that for knowing whether you can trust that friend. Now kids... You still don't do it unless you do already trust that friend. Um, but, but there's a trade-off, and that's why God sets it up this way. He sets things up in the nation of Israel and in your life so that you will have to choose, am I going to trust Him or am I going to trust myself? And throughout Israel's history, Israel 
constantly would catch themselves. And they say, I trust in Yahweh, but I trust in myself. And I trust in Yahweh, but I trust in Egypt. And I trust in Yahweh, but I trust in other gods. And we may do the same thing. We may do the same thing. We may be tempted to do the same thing. But we don't need to because we already have security. We don't need to go looking for security. We have it. We have it in the same place the psalmist here has it. Though he spoke better than he knew because when he said, Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. He was thinking about the king, most likely. A shield throughout the Psalms regularly refers to the Lord. When it doesn't, it commonly refers to princes and kings as representing the power of a nation. So when he says, Behold our, our shield, he's saying, Look at our king. Look at the one you anointed. Be faithful to your promises to us and be faithful to your promises to your anointed one. We say the same thing when we claim our security in God. We're not talking about any physical king here on earth now. We're talking about King Jesus. Oh, worship that king. And we say, God, I am trusting you completely. I'm trusting you for my life now. I'm trusting you for my righteousness. I'm trusting you for my wisdom. I am trusting you for everything. I am trusting you that you are most satisfying. I am trusting you that you are most strong. I am trusting you that in Jesus, I am absolutely secure. So if you want to be happy, see this picture here in Psalm 84. Follow the psalmist in his commitment to not trust anything else but to be completely satisfied, strengthened, and secure in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Please apply it to our hearts and help us. In Jesus' name, Amen.